there's a fixation on um, trying to address the power differential. And mm -hmm. wouldn't it be great if we got the first X, X. of Y? Right. Uh, now, the, there are a lot of Americans who are kind of impatient with the first X of Y thing um, because it doesn't matter as much as we thought or hoped or whatever the hell. Right. Um, you know, there were some people that thought Barack Obama, president of the United States, means we're not racist anymore. We're post-racial, right. which, by the way, we're probably more racist now than, than we were. Backfired people could, you know, people were making the same argument um, about Hillary. It's like, hey, first woman president. We like show that we ought to be over it. And then... Right. Uh, you know, like, uh, um, I, I don't think that would have fixed it. Imagining, systemic problems, right? They're imagining that that having an elected representative of a certain identity. And by the way, like, I'm for people of different backgrounds being in, like, different seats. I mean, I, I, I think I think it's great. Same. But but making that, like, the criteria, mm -hmm. uh, the criterion that you're using primarily is is not great. And Correct. A lot of Americans can sense that the media in particular has gone overboard um, with this. And one of the byproducts of this is that it has the potential to divide the country further mm -hmm. where you have, and I'm going to use you as the proxy, you have like reasonable, well-intended white people, men and women, who are generally aligned with the Democratic Party on some things but feel driven out because there's right. this implicit like we don't care about you and your perspective because you are the powerful in the power differential equation and all we're going to do is talk to people who are from an historically marginalized group. This week on Forward, did Bernie get a fair shake from the DNC in 2016? Why parents are struggling with the Democratic Party? What it's like being a white guy in 2022 in politics this week on Forward. And we're back. This week, there was a bit of a Twitter kerfuffle based upon something I said that I thought people already knew and had accepted. So let me rewind uh, for a moment. A guy named Nick Kristoff, who works for The New York Times, very prominent writer, is running for the governor of Oregon, where he grew up, where he's from, has a house, etc. So I saw a story about how the insidery Democratic Secretary of State had said he is ineligible to run in the Democratic primary because he's not a resident. And then Nick was like, hey, this is bogus, like I am a resident. And my reaction was typical Democrats uh, don't want the outsider to run and have a chance to compete, so let's ding him. And there was a sense that the Democratic Secretary of State, obviously close to some of the other Democratic uh, officials in the state who are running against Nick Kristoff. Again, this is a Democratic primary. Mm -hmm. So intra-democratic affair. And I, I instinctively thought, like, that this is political. And so I wrote, uh, hey, no wonder people are losing so much faith, uh, you know, in, in a Democratic primary. And then my next thought was that the Democratic Party sometimes has some very anti-lowercase d Democratic impulses where they kind of like be like, no, no, let's not listen to whatever the people are saying. Let's just do it ourselves or we know best. 
And the most prominent example of that in my mind was kneecapping Bernie during the 2016 presidential nomination, right. where Hillary Clinton was the favorite, the anointed one uh, of the DNC. And so my tweet said something along the lines of the DNC should have let Hillary and Bernie fight it out fair and square. And if they do that, then Bernie probably wins. And then Bernie probably beats Trump. Democratic Party has some anti-democratic impulses sometimes. And that ended up setting off a Twitter, you know, <laughs> The second part of your quote was, do the failings of the Democratic Party have something to do with the rise of Trump? Question mark. Sure. Will they change tax in 2024? Question mark. Probably not. Probably not. I think most people <laughs> would. I, I, so I, I didn't know any of this was going to be controversial. You trended on Twitter. I love days like that. Yeah, I wake so, up. You chose violence. Twitter's going nuts. Andrew Yang's trending on Twitter. Always a good day. Always. Uh, Never so, not been a good day. I know, in hindsight, in the moment's kind of tough. Always fun, though. Again, like, I thought this was objective, documented fact that the DNC kneecapped Bernie at every turn. I mean, Donna Brazil's book came out and said, yeah, that's what went on. It was documented fact. She had to walk it back. But it seems pretty documented that Hillary had at least a slight advantage at worst here. I, I thought the full story was that the DNC was running low on money and the Hillary Clinton campaign gave them like an allowance. And then in, in <clears throat> return, the DNC was like, yeah, the fix is in. That is the bigger allegation here. I mean, uh, that, that stuff must be backed up. Seems you know, and... pretty. <laughs> I was trying to do some research on this, like see what we got. I'm not an expert. The story's all over the map. It does seem while Hillary did that, it also appears that the DNC theoretically offered the same type of influence to other candidates as well. <laughs> they they, they said, like hey, their, Bernie, you give us money too? Yeah, if anyone else wants to give us money, we would do the same. Uh, that was, yeah, anyway, I, 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 look, obviously anyone watching objectively was like, yeah, she's like the shadow primary. The shadow primary. Yeah, so I, I, I didn't think this was necessarily... no. Okay, so the DNC putting their thumb on the scale for Hillary, to me, uncontroversial. Was it dispositive in the result? Like, you know, if you just had a truly fair, objective process, does Bernie beat Hillary? That's arguable. That so, is arguable. So the fact that I was like, hey, he probably wins, like, you could take issue with that statement, and I'd be like, yeah, yeah. Like, in, you know, I, I do feel like Bernie shocked everyone with a level of energy around his campaign. He, he, it felt very organic. Mm -hmm. That that was part of the contrast where Bernie had the people's energy and then Hillary kind of had that corporate energy. So that, if you take issue and be like, hey, Hillary would have won anyway, it's like, okay, we can, you know, that, that's fine. Mm -hmm. um, Bernie beating Trump, I feel like that's very, I'm confident in that estimation. That, that piece of it doesn't feel terribly controversial to me either like trump if you remember going into that 2016 race people really were not excited about trump and a lot of people thought it was inconceivable that he would it would have been interesting because i think he would have been painted even more of a socialist than he is now by fox news and i'll be interested to see how that plays out but i agree that's definitely a strong argument that he would have had a shot uh so it, it got me thinking about this entire like anti like democratic impulse feeling i, I have around the democratic party where there is like this corporate layer uh, they represent the establishment. And then there are people who want various things that are on the outside looking in. Mm -hmm. And I think that dynamic will continue to play out in the Democratic Party, in mm -hmm. large part because there are very large corporate interests who 
are right there with the Democratic Party saying, uh, especially, you know, some of their attached media organizations. The fact that this ended up lighting a bit of a, a firestorm was genuinely surprising to me, but I guess that just shows where, where, where I am. This opens a number of questions and I want to ask them all. Because who got mad here? Is either burners or like, yes, Andrew, this is obvious, like, screw you, like, don't try and jump on our train now, you missed this boat. And then folks that were saying, you're wrong, Andrew, or this isn't the case. Um, so start with the burners piece. Tell me about your support. I mean, I have a good sense of it, but tell the world about your support for Bernie Sanders and your relationship there. I remember in 2016 watching a Bernie rally or speech uh, on TV and saying, yeah, th this is right. I don't disagree with anything he's saying. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, well, I should support him in some way. So I, I sent in a donation. Mm -hmm. And then when he lost, I then said, OK, I guess I'll vote for Hillary, mm -hmm. uh, which I did. Um, so I supported Bernie during the primary uh, and saw that he was mistreated and kneecapped and, right. and the rest of it. Um, and, you know, I, I wasn't um, raging in the streets about it. I was like, oh, yeah, here's, here's the DNC, yeah. you know, doing their thing. And then was like, oh, I guess it's Hillary. I guess, you know, like, like that, that was my um, attitude. It was sadness and frustration right. over Bernie's treatment. But. Clearly thought Hillary would be a much better president than Trump. So right. you know, that, that, that's where I went. But you had said a number of times when you ran for president that Bernie in some ways inspired your run. Um, am I right in saying and re remembering that? And like both policy wise and then movement wise and the energy around it. And it's one of the reasons, one of many reasons you were exploring a run in 2020. Is that right? Oh, yeah. It was invigorating and uplifting. And I again, I agreed with everything he was saying. So I was like, wow, there are these really big, deep problems that mm -hmm. the American people are trying to figure out how to answer. And so in most of our policies, like at least I remember being in the room, we were very spiritually aligned with Bernie's intentions. Well, we just want to make right? things better for people. Right. Like Bernie wants to make things better for people. I want to make things better for people. Right. You know, I think people at every part of the political spectrum want to make things better for, for people. I just talked to a guy who surveyed Democrats and Republicans about what they want. Most of it's the same. Yeah, I agree. It's like there's a slight reorganization, but the top five goes something like more jobs, better schools for kids, better access to health care, yeah. reduce crime, like in, in some order. So things aren't going well. Mm -hmm. Our institutions are underperforming. We're 28th in the world and declining at most basic quality of life measurements. Right. And the two parties are not genuinely arguing over who can actually deliver better results for mm -hmm. people. It's like an ideological struggle. Right. Um, it, it's one reason why I think Bernie does beat Trump is because Bernie seems and is for the people, not corrupt, mm -hmm. uh, sincere, would like really have shaken things up in D.C. as president. That's what most people want at this point. Yeah. He was similar to you. You guys had a lot in common that you were both laser focused on the issues, like did not get caught up in a lot of like the petty spats and things like that. And he never has his whole career. Generally speaking, he's pretty much laser focused on for him. It was Vermont or various aspects of his platform. I mean, when Bernie, I remember this, like Bernie had a heart attack in the middle of the race. We thought he was the world thought he was dropping out. I was going to I thought we were going to have to. And like kudos to him, like a freaking warrior. Like <laughs> he had a heart attack back on the trail like three days later, whoever it was. Um, but I mean, the, it wasn't just us. The press and, as well were saying that, you know, one of the biggest beneficiaries here would be Andrew, of course, as we had a lot of similar um, both principles and audiences and, and vibes and things like that. Now, in the presidential, you endorsed Biden. And 
I would say I think rational human beings at that point were like, this race is over. You were lining up. But there were plenty of burners online that are probably the same way the Yang gang would react if Bernie endorsed Biden and we had already lost. Right. Um, but that did like rationality doesn't always play well on Twitter or online or with rabid fan bases. So thoughts on maybe talk a little bit more about that endorsement process, what that went through your mind? Because I think the whole time you were more of a Bernie guy than a Biden guy, you know? Yeah, no, I was hoping the whole time that Bernie came out for universal basic income or some version. Yeah. And I had communicated in various ways, like, look, you guys come out for UBI, I'm there. I'm coming early, yeah. Yeah, and Bernie, for whatever reason, was not a fan of universal basic income at that time. Like, logically, it would be Bernie, I don't think. You Joe, had said, Joe's if any, I believe it. you said, if any contender down the stretch here, comes out. For yeah, yeah, I was, I was very, it was clear as day. I was yeah, like, my, look, just, yeah, just let, and by the way, it. the end game will fall, fall in line too. You know, yeah, let's, let's do it. That's what they're for. Joe wins Michigan. And at that point, the numbers made it such that it would be nearly impossible. He swept essentially Super Tuesday, right? It was like, yeah. And so I was like, okay, the, this, this race is, is effectively over. Yep. And so let, let me line up and try and get Trump out because that was to me the focus. Right. Which I, Respect. It's one of the things, um, and we'll talk about this probably more in the podcast, but one of the things makes you, in my opinion, a great a person I respect. And it also makes you, frankly, like a, a less effective traditional politician in the sense that you you know what it means to be a leader in this. It, like you value leadership and like what, what a lot of comes with what and having been in leadership roles, what comes with leadership is, frankly, the guy or gal has to make the hard decision no one likes. Right. Like the hard decision there is like, yeah. Line up behind the guy. If, like, if the greater good is or greater decision or where this country needs to go is a line up behind who can beat Donald Trump. This is the decision a leader needs to make and not worry about his own political career. Right. And you to be fair, you didn't call the Biden team and ask for favors. You didn't say, hey, what are you going to give me? You didn't. Do that. You just did it. Um, and I think a traditional maybe more selfish politician would be like, hey, Joe, what do you got for me? I'm going to make this endorsement. And you did it because you thought it was the right thing to do and what a leader should do. Yeah, when Joe called me, I said no. So, uh, you That's know, true. it was a pretty shitty way to try and get stuff. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. I forgot about that. Yeah, I did. Well, part of it, too, and, and this is what I think what you're suggesting is that I'm not a terribly ideological fellow. You know, if you put me in a seat at a particular moment in time, be like, okay, like what's the maximal uh, value to be had? It's like the maximal value at that point was to try and do everything I could to, in my opinion, get Trump out. And if Joe was going to be the nominee, then let me get to work right. and uh, try and bring people together as quickly as I, I can. Um, so that's what I did. Uh, right now with the forward party, I feel the same way. It's like, what's the most maximally useful thing I can do. And it's try and give people real choices and just face facts that this duopoly is going to ruin us, that, that there is no massive transformation that's going to emerge from these institutions. Oh, actually, I take it back. What? There are negative transformations that can emerge mm. from these institutions. <laughs> We're not going to see like the, the wave of positive transformation, no, innovation, like that, that's not happening. I've been writing about this, talking about how um, basically sticking to principles or like setting your identity around one policy or position is now the norm. And that's how a lot of people are building what I call identity brands, have people identify with that position, identify with that person. But also it's like they're, they're, make, they're becoming famous, politically speaking, um, because of this. And it prevents compromise. But it also is somewhat politically effective, right? Because you, you can build these movements and become a force and be a pain, a thorn in someone's side, whatever it is. 
you have you've staked out a few like key principles, but generally speaking, to your point, you're not an ideological fellow. Is your exact words? You are. Um, you listen to reason. Frankly, you change your mind when new evidence is presented to the contrary. To me, that's good leadership. I think that's what rational human beings do. But literally, the press have called you a lightweight because of that, right? Or they've called you, I mean, God knows what, like, a lot of things. Does that frustrate you? Have you ever thought, like, oh, maybe I should just, like, dig my heels in because it's going to be better um, to accomplish a political goal than what may be true to your principles or who you are naturally as a human? No, I, I tend not to think in those terms, but I, I see the pressures that other political figures are under, which is mm. that, like you said, you stake something out and then you just become. So here, here is what most politicians would have done in my shoes, I think. Yeah. Is like uh, you run for president on universal basic income and then you just become the UBI guy. Yes. And then you just run around and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to stake this out. Now, I happen to believe in universal basic income and that we need to make it happen. I started an organization, Humanity Forward, that's working very hard to try and move us um, in in that direction. I didn't have that much of an interest in saying like, hey, I'm going to be Mr. UBI forever, which by the way, would have, in my opinion, made me pretty well liked. It, it, we got it, pressure to do that everywhere we went, like for months. The, the reason why I didn't naturally want to do it was because I saw the political pressures for it and against it. And I thought, well, Andrew Yang running around saying UBI, UBI, I don't believe really changes that equation in a way that would make it more likely to happen. Mm -hmm. Now, some people might disagree, but this was my read. Mm -hmm. I, I think we're better served by having professional lobbyists working it and not leading with Andrew Yang, Andrew Yang, mm -hmm. you know, just saying, look, your constituents love this. Different mm -hmm. people love this. The Political incentives are for you to become a symbol. And then we're like, oh, I can like make currency by being the symbol. Then you just become mm -hmm. that symbol. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of figures get stuck in various ways. I'm more of a human being, <laughs> I suppose. I'd be like, oh, you know, like, let me try and solve the problem. Let me right. genuinely try and solve the problem. And to me, solving the problem means reforming these institutions. And I'm really pumped to be doing it because... The folks who are working on reforming these institutions are noble and principled and well-intended and they need help. Mm -hmm. So if I can do that, then there's a much higher chance of these original goals actually being achieved. The, the issue is that people don't want a whole lot of flexibility or adaptation in their political figures. You know, it's like to be singing version of the same tune for right. years and years and years, which I don't hate. Right. You know, it's like you, you appreciate it. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses as tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. 
Don't take my word for it, Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. When you had finished your presidential race in 2020, if I was keeping my same political marketing hat on, and I'm curious if you would agree with this, this is what I would have told you to do. I would have told you to, you lean into your your identity brand 100%. So you lean in, you're still the cash relief, free money guy. You're an outsider and you're tech forward, opposite Donald Trump, Asian man who likes math, right? I would have pressed you, and, and folks did press you to do, to get a job in the Biden cabinet, ideally in a tech role, right? That's totally, totally on brand. And in a vague role that had low expectations, maybe a new role, maybe head of, like the existing roles were science and technology, but some sort of like, chief innovation officer or secretary of the future or something where you could just go around the country and be the free money, forward thinking guy. And then you would have this brand, you'd own this lane, never would have advised you to run for mayor or anything else until it was like uh, probably president again, right? And you'd probably have the same, probably had Bernie's fate, if you will, like a better run round two but still been in your lane and not able to broaden out. But I think that influence would be like politically powerful in various ways. I don't know about you. I had that in my ear from a whole bunch of our supporters, at least the more political, traditional ones. Did you get that as well? Or do you have people giving you this type of advice over and over? I I, heard, I did hear that sometimes. Yeah. yeah. To me, you're too much of an operator to even ever want to be in a lane like that, you know, where you're like, well, the problem's actually the duopoly. It's not the cash relief. There's plenty of people who can do cash relief now. Like I've solved that like like awareness problem, right? Um, and that's the hardest part where you, um, you become this type of politician it's very difficult to get out of it and you lose some stuff and you can get out of it too. You have to blow some things up. You have to take a step back to go too forward, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. I, again, I don't really think in those terms, it's just like, Hey, how can I yeah, add the most value solve. and solve the most, <laughs> you know, solve the biggest problems I can during the time. So if it was waffling around DC, pretending to have impact and be like, I, you know, like did, did this, I was on that. Like it, it would have sucked. I don't think that would have been genuine, uh, but I, I did get advice from people who were thinking in terms of like democratic politics. Yeah. Oh yeah. I understood it, but I also thought we'd hate it, you know? Um, yeah. I think people would have recognized it as somewhat inauthentic too. Uh, that's the biggest part of it. You have to remain authentic to yourself. We hated the process of looking into the cabinet roles. Yeah. It was very, um, distasteful and enervating. Like it, it didn't make me think like, oh, I really want to can't wait for this. It. Yeah. Just like, oh God, you guys like, and this is a microcosm of why I think people are frustrated in that. Like my glimpse into that process was like, whoa, mm -hmm. like it was like you get in there and then all of a sudden it's like democratic jockeying for positions of this and that, yeah. uh, you know, and I'm, I'm seeing it with so this is not a knock, who the hell knows? But like, uh, you know, Marty Walsh, who was the mayor of Boston, became the secretary of labor mm -hmm. in D.C. And now the word is that he's going to leave to go come back and run for uh, really? for, you know, know for, for a position in Massachusetts. Think governors, I don't know, something. Right. Um, but it, it just really paints a picture that these big deal D.C. positions 
are just another seat. <laughs> like, like you do it and you're like, oh, now I'm going to do this. Like, like there's like this game of musical chairs and then you'll like talk about the impact you had while, while you were in that seat. Yeah, so that was the vibe I got and it, it wasn't a good feeling. We talked to a lot of these people that were in, let's call it senior roles in the Office of Science and Technology, the Department of Labor, things like this. And they were, they were talking down to you and me like, and I wrote this paper, I did this white paper, I did this, a lot of white papers, frankly. But like, and I'm like, I never heard of any of this. I don't think the average American would have a clue. No, or find I mean, the average American the has no idea that the Office of Science and Technology Policy yeah, exists. This isn't helpful at all. So I, I mentioned two parts of, of your tweet that were interesting. One was the Bernie piece, which we kind of just outlined. But the other one was criticizing Democrats in the election in general. And I, I want to ask you this. I know you're going to think this is ridiculous, but I really just want your thoughts. I, I think there's a challenge. There's like this inherent signal sometimes when you criticize a Democratic Party, you're inherently still okay with what Republicans are doing. So a lot of Democrats, when you criticize the party, you'll be like, have you seen what the Republicans are doing? I mean, they're actual racists. Like, how dare you criticize the Democrats when the Republicans are this bad? How do you think we navigate that? Because I, I struggle with this too, and I'm like, God, the Dems suck. They're like, well, the Republicans are awful. Why aren't you complaining about that? It's like, I don't know. We've kind of known the Republicans are god awful for a long time. Do I have to keep hammering it? Like, I'm worried about the my team. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Not that it's your team per se anymore, but thoughts on how we um, are able to criticize the Dems without saying we're okay with the far right. <laughs> that is the knee-jerk response yeah. on both sides. It's like, yeah, have you seen the other side? Um, so <laughs> so this is a segue into a couple of articles that yeah. you and I were reading and talking about this week, which were these two parents, moms, who criticized school closures in their communities, one in Cleveland, one in Oakland, mm -hmm. and then just got attacked as being Trumpists, essentially, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Or... People who were anti-science, anti-teachers, anti- Yeah, like high maintenance. Fucking white parents was uh, what this woman said she was accused of being called in the Atlantic. Um, yes. So these parents were negatively impacted by school closures, which any parent can tell you it, it, it's a bit of a disaster where your kid eventually just gives up on remote schooling because remote schooling is bullshit. This, the teacher logs on for remote schooling like 15 minutes a week. And if that seems like an exaggeration, if you talk to enough parents, like, you know, that that's not unusual. The response from various activists are to just respond very negatively to criticism. Mm -hmm. But the Democratic Party just takes criticism very, very poorly, even when the stated goals uh, of the party aren't being met. Mm -hmm. Where if you look at who is going to be negatively impacted by school closures, you know who gets it the worst? Children of color who can least afford oh, yeah. a year away from school. Working class parents who need to have a place to bring their kids. The most vulnerable get hurt the most. So if you prioritize those people, you'd be like, you know what? Schools stay open, hell or high water. Mm -hmm. And that was not the priorities. The, the priorities were the teachers unions. And so then when you say, hey, this is messed up then the the right response in some ways would be like, oh, yeah, like we really need to get on this because, you know, like we, we actually live to our values or like our stated priorities. Um, but because politics has become so tribal, mm -hmm. uh, criticism gets taken as like an attack from the other team, even if as these two moms were, they were both like, hey, I'm on this team. Like I've been mm -hmm. a Democrat for a million years. And the data shows that this issue was a bigger deal in the Virginia race than, quote unquote, critical race theory. Yep. Um, and uh, as a parent with a child in public school whose school was closed for the better part of a year, parents are so angry about this. Uh, and a lot of parents that had the ability, um, you know, one of the, the moms in these articles 
eventually after it sounds like two years of, of struggle of eventually um, sent a child to private school she had to go to charter really, school yeah or charter school or private school felt yeah. really bad about it but the repercussions to these kids of remote schooling or lack of schooling I mean it's gonna last for years maybe a generation yes. uh, there's gonna be a reckoning around like th this is going to be such a signal failure for anyone who's associated with it mm -hmm. uh, and the sooner the Democratic Party realize that there are a lot of parents that feel this way because this is a political disaster yes for dems particularly if you're in an area that is anywhere close to being tightly contested so we talk about a lot of articles but this one guys i cannot encourage you to read it more it was jarring the article is called why i soured on democrats we'll put it in the in the link of this episode it starts off with this woman talking about how much of a card carrying dem she is she's like I registered a vote like before you can possibly register. I'm like, tr I've lost friends over how much I hate Donald Trump. I am, I go to protests and not just the Black Lives Matter protests. I've been protesting for decades. Like I am a, I am the stereotypical like female Democratic voter. And she's like, I don't know who to vote for because the Democratic Party has betrayed me. And she, she talks in detail about how difficult it is to have a three-year-old and a five-year-old have two working parents and so get hard. them through remote school. And like, for me, I don't have kids. And so yet, um, and I've always heard like, I've always been like, kind of you and I joke like, oh yeah, that's gotta be hell, right? But then when you read about it, like that is awful, awful. And to, to, the thought to me of be, be paying fucking taxes, a lot of taxes, you're taking half your income in taxes and the school just not be open. And so now I'm, I, what, infuriating and the only thing they can do is vote and they're like i have trump or the party that's supposed that's in power not doing anything i don't know what to do and and this was the quote that stuck with me and read to you said she said none of this has shaken my support for the democratic agenda which i still endorse wholesale which is interesting what i've lost is my trust that the party is truly motivated to act in the interests of those they claim to serve how can I get excited about universal pre-K proposals, for example, when K through 12 is in shambles? And that, to me, just hit it, the nail on the head right there. Like, I'm still fucking, like, like the policies of the Democratic Party? Yes, let's go. But the Democratic Party didn't do any of it. And so then you're stuck between a rock and hard place. Like, Trump sucks, and the Democrats are supposed to help us also suck. So, forward party it is. The, this is the fundamental challenge that the Democratic Party will not reckon with, mm -hmm. uh, which is that a lot of the institutions aren't actually delivering the value that they're purported yeah. to. Uh, and it's clearer now with schools during the era of COVID, mm -hmm. but it was true of the schools pre-COVID, where if you look yeah. at the value that parents and families were getting out of the investments in education, it wasn't what, you, what you'd expect mm -hmm. or deserve. Uh, you know, we've been failing parents right and left for, for a long time. Mm -hmm. And this is one reason why the duopoly is so toxic is because the Democrats say, look, we're going to say we're for a bunch of things. Uh, and whether or not our schools or hospitals or government uh, or services actually deliver the values we say, irrelevant. The Republican Party will come along and say, hey, we don't believe in a lot of this stuff or these institutions. It's wasteful. It's inefficient. Let's cut, cut, cut. Let's cut taxes, etc. And there needs to be a third way where it's, look, we want to use your tax dollars efficiently to deliver 
resources at a, uh, at a very high value, make it effective, efficient. These schools are going to be great. Your healthcare is going to be great. Your roads are going to be great. Like we're going to actually kick ass. Uh, and right now there's no competitive pressure for mm -hmm. government to deliver. You mm -hmm. either have these kind of slumping bureaucracies that everyone's getting fed up with and then Democrats will make lofty promises about what those bureaucracies will deliver, most of which aren't true. And the Republicans will just be like, look, they're full of shit. And then, you know, like that, that's the contest of ideas that we're stuck with. Right. Um, so what you would need is a third way where it's like, look, it turns out we all want the same things. Mm -hmm. We want decent schools for our kids and a thriving uh, economy full of jobs we actually want. And decent health care and mm -hmm. low crime and high public safety and like, a, you know, a positive environment. Like, again, Democrats and Republicans alike want these things. Yep. Um, just the, the question is, how can we actually start delivering in a time when the media conversation is not around outcomes? It's around drama, politics, perception, social media, uh, the back and forth of the day. Again, we're 28th in the world on public education, uh, clean drinking water, infant mortality, life expectancy, et cetera, et cetera, with a down arrow. This is the switch that has to happen. And this mess with the schools is waking up a lot of Dems to the fact that, look, um, this should not be as ideological as it is. I mean, one thing that Bill Maher just put out that you just sent me yeah. was that Democrats dramatically overestimate the chances of COVID putting you in the hospital. And it's not like, you know, the actual number is one to 5%, right? Yeah. Some of that. Um, but it's not like we think 20% of the people are dying. It's They think like 50 plus percent of people are dying. And 70% of the party thinks it's over 20%. Of people are dying. Yeah. So, so th this to <laughs> me has to be the the message that these moms are finding out. Yeah. Is that the Democrats imagine that they're the party of facts mm -hmm. and science, mm -hmm. uh, and then the Republicans are uh, troglodytes and you know like ignorant and the rest of it. Yep. Um, but then when you start digging, it turns out that the Democrats are actually tribal uh, and ideological in the same way as anyone else. And that's not a knock. It's just, you know, everyone's yeah. somewhat tribal. Um, but then if someone like this mom in Cleveland raise her hand and be like, hey, I'm a member of the tribe. And like, you know, the, the, these facts aren't lining up. Then they'll just get hammered down. Like it, instead of, you know, so like because then they'll yeah. be like, hey, it turns out you're not on our team or whatnot. Yes. And, and there are all these people embedded within the Democratic Party who actually have similar points of view who fear the hammering down. Yes. They know if they, they say these things. And that's what we're going to get to now, which is... Um, your experience as someone who is something of a convert to the Democratic Party, that there is the, a sense that some people, uh, some people's experiences are more valid than others. If you are, let's say, in your case, like a straight white dude, or in this author's case, like a white mom, then you're not allowed to criticize mm -hmm. or talk. And that if you do, then you're going to be personally attacked. It's a really deep point. And it's, it's, it's this... She's talking about where do you go, right? And the, the challenge is on the presidential level, which a lot of us, we hold a president, it's a different election, right? We hold them as like almost godlike, essentially, in terms of our leaders and who we look up to and blame things on. And that's, a, you know, there's a lot of like research on that too. It's, it's a combination of whether it's virtue signaling or the right mouthpiece um, in terms of who can say what and what can be said. And I, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on this because 
my hesitation of ever getting into politics is that I'm a like socially aligned with the Democrats. I think the Democrats have generally have the right policies on a lot of things. Some things on the Republican side, I, I think, you know, I, I like capitalism more than um, I do socialism or other socialism or other things. But um, I've hesitated because I don't think the Democratic Party loves straight white men. Um, and even when I was telling, talking to you about running before, like before I met you when we first started, I was like, how do you beat Donald Trump? I was like thinking it had to be an outsider. It had to be someone who was young. I thought they had to be male because I thought they had to have the, the, the balance to the Trump male energy. But I also thought they had to be diverse coming from the Democratic Party to get through that primary. You've talked about this a bit with John McWhorter, but why are Democrats, we're, we're obsessed with identity. I have some thoughts on it too, but we care a lot about the messenger over the message at times. You lived that, I think, um, both the pros and cons of that. John described it in his book, Woke Racism, which you should check out. You should check out my convo with, uh, with John um, if you haven't seen it. He says that there's a certain subset of the Democratic Party that is obsessed with the power differential. Mm -hmm. um, so the power differential typically is framed as white, black, where whites have the power, blacks do not. Mm -hmm. And so whites need to uh, try and address this through various behaviors that John argues don't actually address the fundamental problems that people it, care right. about. It's just, you know, sort of a strange behavioral layer. But the other power differentials that people are concerned about um, are male, female, straight. And part of the LGBTQ plus yeah, community, right? Yes. And so taking a figure like you, um, you are all of the quote unquote like uh, positives and the power differentials because you're a straight white male. Right. Also in your case, uh, you have the sins of being tall, handsome. <laughs> yeah, I'm the devil, I'm the devil incarnate. To, uh, the, the rest of it. So of, it, if, if you frame everything in power differential, then it's like, well, someone like you, then any success you achieve is uh, because you are who you are and it had nothing to do with your Right. Uh, actions, character, work ethic, like, you know, right. uh, it, it's just, you know, just fell out of bed. Result, our, right. yeah. um, and and are, are super successful. Um, and the Asian guy um, occupies like a this? nebulous place in this uh, in this framework, mm -hmm. because if you look at Andrew Yang, you think, OK, um, straight male Asian. And then you're like, where are Asians in the power differential. Right. Um, and the answer is, it is whatever is convenient to you. <laughs> I called you the convenient minority behind the scenes. Now we're putting in front of the scenes if we can, but the Asians are known as a convenient minority in democratic politics. So they're not a minority when they want some message and they are people of color when they, uh, when it's politically convenient. Yeah, so I was interested, obviously, as a candidate, how it would be received. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that it turns out that um, that the quote unquote benefits of being a minority um, did not include me. <laughs> like there wasn't this like, oh, like you know, look what this person must have overcome as yeah. a son of immigrants. Like yeah, that that stuff all went out the window, which I'm more or less cool with. And I think a lot of it, too, is the persona I have, which is I'm not someone who is going to be leading with, like, look at all the shit I've overcome kind of stuff. Yeah. Like, that. that's not my jam. I'm more like, a, OK, let, let's get shit done. Let, yeah. You know, let's uh, operate. Um, and one of the major reasons why I wouldn't fall into the negative side of this power differential, the, the like, less powerful side, right. is because uh, the 
perception was like, well, he's a business guy, he's a tech bro, he's a this or that. But but to your point in the presidential primary, we've discussed this. Yeah. There were half a dozen or more straight white men who ran that never got the time of day in the presidential race. Correct. Many of whom we spoke with personally, you and I, and we liked and thought well of and thought would make fine presidents. Mm -hmm. One guy who completely got short shrift, uh, Joe Sestak. Yeah. Great guy. Press completely ignored him. People watching this right now are like, who? Yeah. You look up uh, J Joe Sestak. Um, Michael Bennett, great guy. Yeah. Uh, John Hickenlooper, great guy. The one guy. I thought that actually had the full package was John Hickenlooper, where that he was an entrepreneur. Uh, he started what's the Goose Island Beer, whatever the beer company is, um, ran it himself, and then became governor, like has business, political experience, um, and and actually is, like there were some, and I'm going to leave them nameless, it's not fair, but there were plenty of, where I'm at, like the world doesn't, we're not clamoring for more straight white dudes in politics. Like we have that voice, we have that perspective, right? I'm not, that's not the problem. Well, well this to me is one of the dangers. Good. Is that if you look at the straight white dudes in politics, uh, the media organizations on the Democratic side do not want to elevate right. th this set of figures. Yes. They will accept like the folks who are already kind of, you know, emblazoned in the public consciousness, like a Bernie or a Joe. Right. But and if, why is that, you think? Is it because of representation? Yeah, there's a fixation on um, trying to address the power differential. And mm -hmm. wouldn't it be great if we got the first X, X. of Y? Right. Uh, now, the, there are a lot of Americans who are kind of impatient with the first X of Y thing um, because it doesn't matter as much as we thought or mm -hmm. hoped or whatever the hell. Right. Um, you know, there were some people that thought, Barack Obama, President of the United States, means we're not racist anymore. We're post-racial, which, by the way, we're probably more we're racist worse. now than, than we were. Backfired people could, you know, people were making the same argument um, about Hillary. It's like, hey, first woman president. We like show that we ought to be over it, and then, right. uh, you know, like uh, um, I, I don't think that would have fixed it. Right. Like, like that. Imagine systemic problems, right? They're Imagining that that having an elected representative of a certain identity, and by the way, like I'm for people of different backgrounds being in like different seats. I mean, I I think I think it's great, Same. but but making that like the criteria, mm -hmm. the criterion that you're using primarily is is not great, and Correct. a lot of Americans can sense that the media in particular has gone overboard um, with this. And one of the byproducts of this is that it has the potential to divide the country further mm -hmm. where you have, and I'm going to use you as the proxy, you have like reasonable, well-intended white people, men and women, who are generally aligned with the Democratic Party on some things, but feel driven out because there's right. this implicit, like, we don't care about you and your perspective because you are the powerful in the power differential equation. And all we're going to do is talk to people who are from an historically marginalized group. Because I live, we, I live this both personally and through you, right, on this campaign. But also, um, I want to share this with everybody. Like, we live this actually e with each other. I don't know if you remember this story. Um, it was really early on. I just started on the campaign. And I was, we'd go into like our first couple meetings and I'd make these little one-off comments I didn't even realize I was making. I'd be like, uh, we'd talk about your campaign or I'd talk about the campaign and be like, well, that's if we if we do okay. Or that's before we get a real campaign manager or we get a real X, Y, Z. Or I'd like kind of caveat what we were doing. And you got really mad. And in, in my opinion, just so. You're like, stop 
second guessing this caveating like we got to go in guns blazing we are confident we're setting the world on fire this is a vision we have to get people on board we can't give them crack show the cracks in our in our faith in this because we don't believe how are they going to believe which is logical but and then it got to a point where i was really like proactively working on it and i was still fucking it up like you and you would notice it make you more mad you're like i've asked you six times to do this and i remember i sat you down probably like it took me a while to figure out. i'm like dude here's the deal my whole life i naturally come at it trying to be as humble as humanly possible when I go to a meeting because I come off as a fucking asshole. You know, so look like, at this cocky like, douche. Look at this yeah, shithead um, who's... Where'd he go, Duke? Straight Fuck. white man. Well, yeah, must have gone to Duke. <laughs> Fuck, that, that, like that, but that's right. And so, like, and you, but then you told me, like, and I was like, I think for you, having watching you, like, and this is fucked up too, but like as an Asian guy, people think you're timid or shy or not not sure of yourself and you're gonna stand there quietly and let people walk over you, which is a bullshit stereotype. So you go the opposite. You're like, bang, extreme. And when you have, if you say the same thing that I would say, it comes off 10 times different. And I've learned that the hard way because one time in Ohio, I gave your stump speech at like a democratic event, like the basically word for word stump. Awful. Crashed and burned. Could not do it. The opposite of Donald Trump is an Asian guy who likes math. Doesn't sound as cool. It sounds a little offensive coming from me. <laughs> a little it did not go well. Um, identity matters. Um, and, and like, and um, I'm not, there's systems around us that are creating those perceptions and realities. Did you feel the need to be more confident in yourself and your vision because you were Asian? Or was that something you had growing up too? Or something you felt more in politics? I mean, thoughts on, on that piece? Well, certainly on the campaign front, people I knew were going to take their cues from us. And so if I come in and people are like, oh, he's not serious, then you know they're, they're not going to tell their friends because they're right. like, oh, th th this isn't going to go anywhere. In terms of my upbringing and the rest of it, um, I was one of the only Asian kids in my public right. school. Uh, and so I felt like my masculinity was in question all the time. I'd also skipped a grade. So that, that made You're it shorter. I was like scrawnier and shorter and like the, the rest of it. Uh, I had uh, a chip on my shoulder. I got in a lot of fights as a kid. Um, and so then when I, I lost most of them. And then when I got to like age 17, I started going to the gym. Yeah. Um, and so I became like an angry weightlifting Asian guy who drank protein shakes and uh, the rest of it. Yeah, you know those guys. Yeah. If you went spot to the- Spot you, bro. Yeah, spot you, bro. And you <laughs> yeah. went, if you went to the- Duke, I actually liked them. They played basketball mostly too. Yes, okay. the I, you know, I did that. And so was that in some ways a response to challenges to my masculinity growing up? 100%. Yeah. It's a phenomenon that a lot of Asian guys are familiar with, or if you go to the gym, you see the, the Asian dudes over <laughs> there it's, pumping um, iron. I mean, I'm very, and we could do a whole episode of this, I'm very, very passionate about um, manhood and understanding. Um, I think most of the, some of the biggest problems in our society are caused by weak men, insecure men. Like if you want, you want to help women, like like helping men be less shitty is a really good way to, way to place to start, frankly, because a lot yep. of like, um, what men go through as kids is, uh, like and how they define their masculinity is a big part of that. Right? I did musicals, right? So I had to do sports to balance that out because I like to sing. I like to play saxophone. You better do some sports then. Um, right? I had to, right? <laughs> and then I didn't fit in either, right? So here's, I've never said this out loud, but I'm, I'm curious. It's like, if there's an acceptance in the Democratic Party that the straight white male is the root of all evil and power, like that's the bastion of... Uh, there's a subset of the Democratic Party that would agree right, with that statement. Right, right. That's, that's the problem, right? I don't... I don't know if vilifying all of them is the right strategy. I'm going to say it's the wrong strategy. Right?
So I want to I want to say this, but there's a scene in The Dark Knight, Batman, when um, there's a I think his reporter or it's a lawyer finds out that Bruce Wayne it's like an accountant, is a consultant. Batman. Yeah, something like that. And he goes to Morgan Freeman, who's a CEO of Wayne Enterprises. He finds out that they're spending money on the Batmobile and things like that. And the quote is. So he basically says, I'm, he tries to blackmail. He's like, I want $10 million every year for the rest of my life because I'm going to expose this is. And Morgan Friedman looks him in the eye and says, so you think your client, who's one of the wealthiest and most powerful men in the world, is secretly a vigilante who spends his nights beating criminals to a pulp with his bare hands. And your plan is to blackmail this person? Good luck. And that, to me, is what I feel with... Now, don't get me wrong. There are plenty, like, it, there are plenty of, I worked with them on Wall Street. There are plenty of white, straight men in power that are doing shitty things or turning a blind eye or proactively keeping people of color and the disadvantaged down. But there are also a good number of folks that fit that same mold that are trying to help. And if you believe that all the power and wealth and energy, and whatever the hell, is in that one type of person, We'd probably want some of them to be on our team if they want to be. Um, now that's not easy. Like someone like me, like I got a lot to learn, right? And I'm. Well, I I would, I would agree with this. You know, um, that you should take people as individuals, in my opinion. Hmm. And so if you meet someone and they are a straight white dude, thinking like, oh, I, I um, will immediately dismiss this person because they can't understand what what it means. I mean, the other thing is like people have been through things that you just can't imagine. Mm-hmm. Like there could be a straight white person who's. Parents died when he was three years old. You know, I mean, like, like, you know, they, they, there are different sources of pain beyond just identity-based adversity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, I, you know, it, to me, it would be ridiculous to think we can build anything and then, but we're going to dismiss people of a certain background, right? Like that, that just doesn't make any sense to me. That, uh, and it probably wouldn't be effective. But what what you're saying is also true in that if you want good things to happen, um, you'd want people who are not just willing friends and and, uh, parts of the movement, but also people that might have some resources to bring to bear, might have some relationships to bring to bear. Some skills, whatever it is, right? Yeah. And that's my my fear. And I want to ask you about what we th- what we think we should do here, because I what I'm seeing is, but my let's call it my my white straight my male friends, they're drifting away from the Democratic Party. They're re- they're aligning up with this woman who wrote the art piece in the Atlantic, or they're they're shifting closer and closer to the Republican Party. And most of them have always been Democrats, and definitely socially liberal, and sympathetic and empathetic to the progressive movement their whole life. You know, and I had a group thread about just asking folks, hey, like, basically, how are you feeling about th- these types of topics? And the quotes I got from my friends or what they feel is that I'll, I'll give you some quotes. I feel like I'm racist. I'm assumed to be a racist um, as a white person. I feel like I have to speak second always, which, uh, you know, to, for better or worse, these are not necessarily my quotes, that the meritocracy is irrelevant. So you are the reason you are successful. Any amount of success you've had is because you are white, male and straight. And a lot of them was, you can't say that. They're afraid of saying anything because, and I am too, and even talking about now, like afraid of stepping on a landmine and um, saying the wrong thing. And it's it's hard because if you're, if we want, let's call it straight white dudes like myself to help more, you gotta let them fuck up a little bit, learn from their mistakes and move on, right? Like, I, you know, right? As opposed to, oh, you said the wrong thing, you're a fucking racist, go away, you're not part of this movement. And then they either grovel the rest of their life to try and get back in or they go right to the arms of Trump. 
Um, or, I, or, or what they most likely do is they keep their heads down in various public settings. Mm, they do nothing. That's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 you know, they send their kids to private school and chill. They, yeah, they don't give a shit. Yeah. It's the quote. It's like, the only thing necessary for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. And it's the biggest... It, it is one, I, in my opinion, this is why I talked to Carly last because you get so triggered about stuff on the left and not on the right when I know you disagree morally with so much stuff on the right. And I think the issue is well, it, it, it requires it, people it, to do something. Well, here's, here's my take on it. Uh, and, you know, the, and people have said the same to me. It's like, you know, not left, not right. It's like you seem to be talking about issues with the Democratic Party more. And it could be because I'm more familiar with them. Yeah. Um, but a, a lot of it is this, where if you have the simple... Co conflict or clash between, hey, we're the establishment, we're the institutions, we know best, and hey, fuck you, burn it down, you're full of shit. Then you're looking at it being like, well, my natural impulse then is to go to the people who represent the institutions and be like, okay, like here's why why people are struggling, here's why people are pissed, here's mm -hmm. why they're like- they're losing people. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's like a natural place to be. Mm -hmm. um, the, the other place to be over here with these folks um, you know, you, you could urge, I don't know, like patience, like, you know, like, uh, don't Christian, worry, like uh, they, they will name? get their stuff together. Piccolini? The Piccolini? Guy, yeah, like converting white nationalists into, that's harder, you're saying. But but it, it's not that Ill illogical for you or me to, to look at like th these two sides and be like, hey, Institution X, like maybe you could do this. But part of the issue is that they're not very introspective. And, and here's one of the reasons why I started the Forward Party is that uh, is that when you realize that neither victory nor policy is the true focus of either party, mm -hmm. then you get it. Mm -hmm. um, so the Democratic Party will convey to you, and the Republican Party will say like, hey, we're about, you know, this education policy like this. And then if you look up and say, okay, like, where are we uh, on these issues? This is why these parents are so pissed off. They're like, wait a minute, I thought you were for this. And it's like, eh, well, you know. We, we just wanted to win. Oh, oh no, no, <laughs> we're, we're, we're for talking about it, but but we are, but we don't actually want to be held accountable for any results. Right. And then if you try and hold us accountable, then we're like, oh, like that's not what we're not about. When you realize that they're not about either achieving their goals or uh, even winning races, that's the, the, the thing because you, you're looking up and you see like why why did we do things sometimes that are definitely reducing our chances of winning <laughs> i mean oh because because the point is not to win mm -hmm. you know if, if you go to someone and say hey latinx turns out it pisses off 30 percent of uh latinos and makes two percent of them happy maybe we should abandon it um then they'll be like well that's not right and you're like well you know it's just math i mean like uh, if your goal is to win then you would not use this term and be like oh but you know, it, I so, can raise money by using the term, or, or you, you keep you, my job you just, by using the term. You have a particular like ideological bent. Mm. Um, so when you realize that like the the core is tribal, mm. um, which again these parents found out the hard way, which is yes. like, hey, like I, I thought the goal is help the kids. I'm like, no, no, kids secondary um, or tertiary. Or I don't care because uh, uh, all I want to do is is uh, feel good about my team. To me, like the Democrats are missing kind of this like it's almost like the hierarchy of needs or like the, like you have the right moral piece, but we're not nailing we're closing schools are missing that the streets aren't safe we're missing crime. Right. Like uh, we're not solving 
healthcare X, whatever they are, but we've lost. You, you need to post institutional wins on the board. And the institutional wins are very, very hard to, to spot at this point. Do you think infrastructure bill is something anyone ever touts as something they accomplished? Oh, there's going to be a lot of like crowing about the infrastructure bill because it's one of the only things they can point to. They're like, you know, uh, by the way, it's going to take months, if not years to like actually see, see that, that roads, you know, yeah, roads. Will we actually see roads, you think? Eventually. I yeah, mean, I you know, it's like freaking $500 billion plus. So, I mean, it's, it's going to get spent. <laughs> it's going to get spent. It's like the new LaGuardia. It'll take 15 years, but then it'll look good. I love the new LaGuardia. I love the new LaGuardia. I didn't love how long it took. It took a while. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, it is beautiful, though. If you go to LaGuardia, you're going to be like, you'll But I, you'll I, I, I want to try and... Uh, dig into this point you're making about you and your friend group and the the yeah. rest of it. Like th this is uh, one of the reasons why I've started forward and why the forward party is so important. And and I went through this process the same as you did, and we learned a lot and got changed by it. And they're like, ah, oh, you know, the, mm -hmm. the the rest of it. We need to be a country where people are not uh, made to feel bad about themselves based upon things they cannot control about their own identity. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. like uh, uh, that should be the starting point. Um, now, that's certainly true if you're black, gay, Latino, like, you know, any marginalized group. Like, you should not be made to feel bad about yourself based upon who you are. Mm -hmm. Also true if you're a tall, handsome, straight, white man. You should not be made to feel bad about yourself based okay. upon. I'm based also upon like the boohoo, straight, white guy, get over yourself. Like, you know, and no, I agree. You know, I see some of that. Ba ba so. ba based upon who you are. Um, so the, the power differential narrative that John and, and I'm, I'm so proud of my sit down with John because I, I think it unpacks because of John's genius. Like, you know, I was just yeah. there. It's a good, uh, it's probably one of our best, best performing episodes for sure, but it's definitely one of our best quality wise. But that power differential narrative that he framed as uh, white versus black, um, it, it's in everything now. It's uh, certainly male, female, straight, gay, rich, poor. Um, like the, the rich poor thing, one of the dynamics that's occurring now is that as soon as uh, like an activist becomes successful and has some money, then everyone turns on him because like, oh, now you're rich. You use the <laughs> XYZ funds for your you house. You bought a house? Yeah, like, like they'll, they'll like uh, attack people on that level. It's, it's kind like of, Bernie. But you, you, used, you used to hammer the millionaires and the billionaires. And now he just hammers the billionaires because <laughs> he's a millionaire. Yeah. Uh, uh, which I don't have a problem with Bernie making money on. I mean, he's a warrior. He's yeah, fighting the people. Like yeah. he's written a bunch of books. The yeah. dude's 80, 81. I mean, yeah. no, he's not that old, is he? He might be that yeah, old. Yeah. <laughs> hey Siri, how old is Bernie Sanders? 80. Yeah. Bernie's 80 years old. Yeah. yeah. So for an 80-year-old to have crossed a million dollar threshold, I mean at uh, 80. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I don't, like I don't think you should really have a huge problem with that. He's not gonna then turn around and <laughs> you know, lose his way at 80. Uh, <laughs> There is certainly truth to the fact that society advantages certain types of people and that uh, there's a lot of unfairness. Um, and you can accept that unfairness without then projecting it onto the character of any individual within the system. You mm -hmm. can say, like, look, this system needs improvement. I'd like to help improve it. My, frankly, like most effective direct suggestion would be to put money into people's hands. Yes. I think that that would be the most uh, powerful. You, you know, like if you took the average struggling black person, you said, hey, I'm going to give you a choice. On one hand, give you a thousand bucks. On the other hand, I'm going to get this uh, white dude to apologize to you. 
like which would they choose? They all choose a thousand bucks. Like I don't give a shit about this. This person's ap- apologizing to me, um, especially if it's a person I don't know. You can want to improve a system without thinking anything negative about the character of someone within that system, even if they've succeeded within that system. Hmm. Because that person, and, and this is one of the biggest damaging like things, and someone will attack me for this, whatever. Holding that individual accountable for the system is just way too far a bridge. Hmm. You know, and, and, and that's one of the intellectual weaknesses of wokeness is like you're responsible, you're complicit, you're culpable. Mm-hmm. It's like that person was born within a society and whatnot, like saying that they're responsible for the society, you, you know. Uh, and again, this is as someone who is very, very aware of the deep inequities. Like I, I understand just how fundamentally screwed up a lot of this has been. And I do think that as a society, we should be trying to address problems and make things better for people as quickly as possible. But I don't think it's appropriate to point to any individual within any group and say like, hey, this is your fault. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, this is you. Mm-hmm. It's like, because that person will look at that and be, and what you're going to do is drive that person away from whatever you're doing as quickly as possible. And if you do that en masse in uh, our country in this time, you're going to be driving away millions, tens of millions of Americans that you're going to need. It's one of the things I struggle with so much, Andrew, with that if you say the wrong thing or I say the wrong thing, not just on Twitter, in the press, with your peers, with other big personalities, that is taken in a vacuum, ignoring everything else about you that would give that, quote, context. For example, like you, where you come from, son of immigrants, like being an Asian man, people called you a white nationalist, like absolutely, okay. But then like start taking like your small earnings from a, from your first, like your, your first successful uh, company sales, starting a nonprofit, then running for president on giving people cash. If you take me like starting a not, like I worked, worked in philanthropy on Wall Street, have run a nonprofit and then worked on a long shot presidential campaign to help eliminate poverty. Those things matter when you say the wrong thing, if I say the wrong fucking phrase, right? And like by any other objective measurement, you're an ally to trying to help the people that we're talking about. You're clearly, objectively, one million percent an ally trying to improve, but that doesn't seem to matter. My question is, can the Dems fix this? I think the Republicans probably either don't give a shit or or, uh, but can the Democrats fix this or is literally the only possible solution, either UBI, like Mindset of Abundance, or multiple political parties where we can like not fix the problem, but just like troll each other and change the, the political well, weight. So, so of, the, this is the, this is the greatest hope we have. And, and it is in a study that came out about the different tribes and the, the middle consists of what's called the exhausted majority where they're like, Oh, you know, like, I don't care about any of this stuff. I just right. want the, like the ideological nonsense mm-hmm. to go away. Um, the, the stuff we're talking about with the obsession with the power differential or whatnot, it applies to approximately 15% of people, um, which is a minority even within the Democratic Party. They just happen to be the, the loudest yep. and um, most conspicuous. The same is true on the other side, where if you look at hardcore Trumpers, and th- this is one reason why I think characterizing all Republicans as racist is incorrect, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all Trump voters as, uh, as immoral, incorrect. Where you, you look at the hardcore conservatives, it's a similar number. It's about 15%. Interesting. The, the problem really is that you have a duopoly 
where the Republican Party has no choice, but then I guess I'm voting for, for, for this side. And the Democratic Party, it has a different set of issues. You have this corporate establishment layer. You have uh, like an ideological left that that is eager to call out people for misstatements and, and, and whatnot. They're, they're different sets of issues. Yeah. And, and I will say that to the extent that I'm concerned about any group in this country, it's the far right who believe that uh, violence is justified to the extent that there's like a, a real uh, deadly threat. Um, it, it, again, it's not symmetrical. Yeah. Like the deadly threat is these violent extremist individuals who, by the way, now that group, it, it's not going to be like an individual org. Unfortunately, it's like this inchoate group of frankly, frankly, millions, yeah. maybe even more like tens of millions of Americans who are sympathetic to, to this idea, in part because we're being set up for this, this clash and this duopoly. Christian Picciolini's work around trying to de-radicalize folks in this space is some of the most important. We should be pouring uh, a ton of energy and resources into it. Uh, to the extent that we do degenerate into political violence, it will almost certainly originate mm -hmm. with this group. It, it's one reason why you need to try and carve up this duopoly as quickly as possible because you have this exhausted majority in the middle who then are looking at it and saying like, oh, like I don't really feel represented. And then they just go home and keep their mouth shut. If you had a movement where people like that felt like, okay, this is it. This is my tribe. I can say I'm forward party and a critical mass of people are uh, able to see themselves represented in this. Now that the tough part is that the folks who are quietly at home keeping their heads down, uh, you know, that they're right now reluctant to raise their hand for just about anything yeah. um, politically because they're, you know, they're, they they have lives and families and like, you know, that they, they see the dynamic that sprung up. If we were to have a genuinely multi-party system, you would have this middle force that would have a ton of energy and weight. In my ideal structure and framework right now, we'd have five political parties. Yeah. There'd be the, uh, the progressives, uh, the moderate Dems, uh, forward party kind of a, as a fulcrum, moderate Republicans and conservative Republicans right. like that. And, and then if you had that, you'd have a much more coherent system and they would call out the excesses. Mm -hmm. uh, but right now they can't call out the excesses because they see it as an attack on their team. I love this as a solution because it doesn't actually um, pretend that our media environment will ever change in the sense that if a lot of these parties, they're like calling card is just trolling the other team, which is very much what happens all the time. Um, yep. But if you have five of them, they can gang up on each other in a way, you know, you know, like oh, the Republicans do something awful, then the other four or two or three of them can actually start trolling the, the Republicans. The swing group right? would become the moderate Republicans yeah. because the moderate Republicans are like, yo, that stuff's like crazy <laughs> and out of bounds. And they yeah. would be like, oh, you know, yeah. like, like that. that that's yeah. You're the ones closer to the fringes would become pretty powerful. Because they would need that to get. Because they would they bring them in when they want them, right? Um, yeah. And yeah. if they don't agree, then, and then it doesn't it's a powerful. Happen. It's a power, more powerful of a statement. You're like, actually, we disagree. That's where we draw the line. It's one of the things about the Democratic Party and parts of liberalism where I do think you need to draw a line at, at certain parts of like, OK, we can be pro teachers. And but at some point, hey, teacher, you have to go to work in the pandemic because our kids are getting up there and not dying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but the kids are the kids are getting. Are, well, I'm are, saying that because the, the data is like it's pretty yes, not, it's pretty safe for kids to go to school. But the kids are losing uh, losing years of development. Right. They are um, getting stunted. Right. Like we don't we can believe in being humane at our borders, but we actually should probably draw a line in having a border because we're a country and that's 
what usually defines a country in many ways. If, right? if you if you really believed in institutions in that space, you'd be like the school being open for kids is mission critical and vital. And, you know, we have to make that happen no matter right. what. And that's not happening. But I do. So this does give me um, a little insight into the purpose behind the forward party, too. It's it's not just this kind of general psyche or general like zeitgeist. It's like, oh, a third party would be good, right? Like, no, it's actually existential in, it, it in is, many ways. It is. In um, part because if everything degenerates into like, oh, you're attacking my team, um, then civil war is inevitable. Right. And to our earlier point, you do not want to establish teams based upon immutable identities. You don't want to say like, hey, this party is for like this set of XYZ people that yeah, look yeah, like yeah, XYZ. That, 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 that'll kill you. Oh, man. Okay. On a more positive note, you watching NFL playoffs coming in. Dude, you're going to Buffalo going. for – is this the biggest game in your memory? Um, I went to the AFC Championship last year. So I guess that's the bigger game that we lost. We were in Kansas City. But this is the first time we've had a home playoff game in Buffalo since, like, 96. And you're going to be there? I'm going to be there. It's going to be 10 home degrees. Home playoff game. Do it. True fandom. Playing the Patriots. So if you're a Patriots fan and listen to this podcast – just don't give me some good juju. I need that good vibes. I don't. You guys have had your. your he is run. going to Buffalo in eight degree weather to support That's his team. Be awful. And if I mean, they lose, it's going to be a very sad gathering. I wasn't gonna go if it was on Sunday. You know what I'm saying? Because I needed like having like Sunday scaries or like a regular Monday work, and that loss would be awful. But it's a Saturday night game. Saturday night prime time, eight fifteen. I think. Um. So we'll see. I think the uh, look, NFL, this is a fun NFL season because no one knows who's going to win. Uh, I don't believe in the Titans as a number one I seed. Know. I don't think anyone does, right? Who knows, man? I mean, you got to give credit credits due. They lost their top two receivers and their star running back and still won 12 games. Um, but like, Chiefs and the Bills beat themselves, so they're good enough to win Super Bowls if they actually um, play well. The rest of that AFC, I mean, like the Bengals can beat most anybody too on any given Sunday. Um, it, it's an interesting season. Like, you know, you don't have a heavyweight. As I just said, I don't believe in the Titans. So, you know, it's like you it's at, at that fun. point. Um, what about on the other side? It's gonna, Brady and Rodgers seem to be my you, standard. You, you feel like Green Bay is going to come up through the NFC, right? Brady, I mean, Brady's team's all banged up. They've lost a couple key players. Um, and Antonio yeah. Brown lost his mind. I don't know. Uh, yeah, the, the, <laughs> it doesn't feel like the Buccaneers have it. Uh, maybe it's because they had that bad loss the other week. Uh, the Saints, I think. Was it? Uh, they, they, they lost to someone they yeah. should not have lost to. Oh, God. It wasn't the Jets, was it? I thought it was the Saints. It was the Saints. Um, We're not they had a bad team. loss. I agree. But I think um, I'm pumped because it's an exciting NFL season and the Bills are relevant in the playoffs. We've won back-to-back AFC champions, championships. This is uh, uncharted territory for me as a fan. This is very exciting. Um, and for those of you who are Georgia fans... Or people who hate Alabama, congratulations this week on your national championship, Georgia. I tweeted, I think this is true. I don't know your thoughts. I think a University of Georgia, University of Alabama football game is like watching the Patriots-Cowboys play in a Super Bowl. Uh, in that no one... Ugh. Ugh. You mean it's too dumb? No one likes the... I don't know. It just feels... I, I was deliberating... Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Sorry I was deliberating on something, and this is just an, an, an aside... I really, really did not like the Patriots during the Belichick-Brady era. And then Brady leaving for the Bucks, um, like now I find myself being like, hey, did I 
dislike Brady or did I dislike the Patriots? I still find myself disliking the Patriots. <laughs> but but now I'm like kind of neutral on Tom Brady and the Buccaneers. Uh, I really huh. respect the fact he left and won and is still doing his thing. Uh, it's, it's amazing. It, it is amazing. And the longevity and the rest of it. Like, you know, it's funny. It's like him leaving the Patriots now has made me like, oh, like, because <laughs> like, when, when he was with the Patriots, I was like, oh, I can't stand those guys. Like, oh, yeah. this, uh, and then Tom Brady wins the Super Bowl, walks around the city kind of drunk in public. It was like pretty, there's some memes on Tom Brady. It was hilarious. Um, yeah, I, look, I think the Patriots, I mean, the cheating allegations are rough. Um, now I realize between the two of them, it turns out I disliked Belichick. Yeah. And uh, you know Brady now I'm I'm fine with um, so go Bills this weekend. I'm uh, as a Duke basketball fan I I've seen like I finally feel both sides of this equation right like Duke is a very hated basketball team people hate Coach K they love to hate him. it's the most hated team in the country. Buff- Buffalo feels like the nice underdog people story. Love right? that yeah can't hate Buffalo that's my uh, my charming aspect my personality guys I'm a Bills fan that's all I got. Um, it, is, it is very charming Zach had to have something to fall back on. Yeah. <laughs> The devil incarnate asshole of this podcast. Uh, you're welcome, America. This was fun, man, Drew. This was good. Hopefully we didn't say anything too bad. We'll see you next week, folks. Bye, everyone. Bye.